Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 176, and today's guest is Lee Hauer, co-founder and partner of NextView Ventures. I've been wanting to interview Lee for a very long time, as he has played a key role in the early stages of two iconic tech companies. He was an early employee at PayPal and was part of the founding team at LinkedIn before becoming a venture capitalist. Needless to say, he's worked with some amazing and iconic names in the tech industry like Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, David Sachs, and so many others. He shares some awesome stories around each company, especially how LinkedIn started to gain traction in the early days. Today, Lee is a partner and co-founder of NextView Ventures, a seed stage investment firm that is focused on investing into companies that are redesigning the everyday economy. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Lee's background and why he was so interested in joining a startup after college, how he met Elon Musk, which landed him a job at the startup he was working on that turned into PayPal, a deep dive into the early foundational years at LinkedIn, his transition into venture capital and all the details on next few ventures, why you shouldn't hire specialists for your startup, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, are you looking for a new opportunity? If the answer is yes, then you need to head over to the VentureFizz job board. We have over 2,000 jobs listed for Boston, New York, or remote positions. There are positions across all functional areas. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs to start searching. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Lee. Lee, thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me, Keith. I'm, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk because um, I've wanted to do this for a long time. Uh, you've, you know, were early in the days of some iconic companies. I mean, we're talking PayPal, LinkedIn. You're a venture capitalist now, but you've worked for some uh, worked with some great, great industry luminaries of, you know, Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, David Sachs, and many, many others from those great companies. But um, so we're going to get deep into the weeds of that. And of course, what you're up to these days is a venture capitalist. But to kick things off, like I, I used to, um, I remember you used to break down S1 filings in detail. Uh, and it just seemed like there was a big passion for venture capital and almost like you're, a, you like kind of like the history of it. And then obviously getting to the point where a company could go public and digging into the S1 filing to see what the, the true, you know, reality of the company was. So just talk about how your, you know, your interest there was. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm I, I'm a fan of history generally, and I like you know reading about the history of lots of different kinds of things. Um, and you know, venture capital is an interesting, you know, it's really a cottage industry. It's a teeny tiny industry. It's a small part of. There's not that many people who work in the field. It's a relatively small part of the overall kind of you know finance ecosystem. Um, and it's a, it's, it's weird and different from other parts of the finance investment management world because we're working with, you know, technology startups and entrepreneurs, not established businesses. Um, but, um, you know, writing those kind of S1 posts and, and breaking down companies, you know, part of it was, um, you know, just understanding and analyzing a business is something that, you know, I'm, I've, I've, I've worked in startups, I've helped start companies, I've been an investor in them now as a, as a VC, but, um, to me, it's always just interesting to learn about the inside of a, of a business from, from as much as you can from understanding, you know, an S1 has a bunch of financial information about a company, but it actually has a bunch of pros and qualitative stuff about a company too. So you can learn a lot sometimes. And, you know, in thinking about kind of venture capital broadly, the, 
the VC industry is one which is, in the grand scheme of things, relatively young. You know, it really didn't really start until uh, after World War II, and um, and even the oldest venture capital firms are, you know, started in the '60s and '70s. Um, and it's just been interesting to to see how you know the industry has evolved to to today. And a, you know, a fun fact that people might not recognize, like the first venture capitalist was in the Boston area, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, depends who who you ask. Where, well, like, what was the the kind of origin of venture capitalism? We know it. I mean, um, a lot of people would point to a, a professor at at Harvard, uh, Harvard Business School, um, you know, in the kind of forties and late forties into the fifties after World War II, named named George Dorio, um, who started um, uh, a firm called American Research and Development and started investing in businesses that had you know some kind of entrepreneurial technology focus at a relatively early stage. Um, and ARD, the firm that, that he had started, um, some of the people who, you know, worked there went on to go start other other kinds of firms. Um, I believe Greylock and maybe some other firms had kind of could tie back their history back to the um, to ARD. Um, and, you know, at the time, Boston was, there was more stuff happening in the technology uh, industry, um, you know, in, in Boston in kind of the 1950s. And, uh, and then Silicon Valley obviously spread and 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 expanded in the in the sixties and seventies and beyond. Well, let's uh, re- rewind the clock for your background. So, um, so, so where where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? I grew up in Florida, actually. Uh, I grew up in, in Tampa, Florida. Born and raised there. Um, my my family moved there uh, shortly before I was born. So my you know uh, my my family's roots wasn't wasn't necessarily in Florida, but that's where I I grew up and raised was raised my whole life. Uh, until college. Um, and as a kid, I was, uh, you know, uh, a kid who I was a pretty normal kid. You know, I, I was into, um, you know, math and science and things of that nature, but, uh, you know, played sports, played music and, and, uh, you know, had a good, good upbringing in childhood and, uh, uh, grew up, you know, middle, middle class and, um, you know, but, but went off to college, uh, uh, in Philadelphia after that, after growing up in Florida. Yeah, so you, so you went to Penn and you, you had a dual degree. So you also studied, you know, at the business school Wharton. So you had engineering and economics. So what was your thought there of the, the dual degree? Yeah, I mean, when I was a, coming out of high school, um, I was intrigued by uh, engineering. I was intrigued by business. I was intrigued by a few different things. Um, and so to me, the program at, at UPenn, uh, there's this program called Management Technology where you, you can do an engineering degree and a, and a Wharton uh, undergrad degree together at the same time. Um, and so it fit really well with what I thought I was interested in. And of course, sometimes what you think you're interested in when you're, you know, 17, 18 years old is not what you're interested in when you're 20 something, or which is not what you're interested in when you're 30 or 40 something. But, you know, for me, um, the things that I thought I was interested in, um, you know, I, I, I did really enjoy my, in my undergraduate education. And so um, on the engineering side, my engineering degree was in systems engineering. So, um, it's kind of, you get to dabble a little bit, took a little bit of computer science, a little bit of civil engineering, uh, a little bit of statistics, uh, a little bit of operations management and operations research, um, but try to understand things at a system level. And then on the business side, I did uh, finance and management as my concentrations. Um, so I got to learn a little bit about both those areas. So even in undergrad, you knew that you wanted to join a startup. So how did, how did you know that? And then Talk about, uh, the, I heard there was a story out there of um, a Penn alum guest lecturer that came in that kind of set the, the foundation for, for what was going to be next. 
Yeah. So in fairness, by the time I was graduating from, uh, from Penn, I was pretty set on trying to find a job in a startup and work in technology startups, but that wasn't necessarily where I started. Um, I think I, I like to say, you know, I, when I'm talking to folks who are, you know, in college or in the early years of their career, at least based on my experience, um, it's often easier to figure out what you don't want early in your career than to figure out what you, what you do want. Mm-hmm. And so when I was at, at Penn as an undergraduate, I spent one summer, um, as an intern in on Wall Street doing investment banking internship. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot and enjoyed certain parts of it, but I realized that investment banking wasn't, and kind of the traditional Wall Street path wasn't necessarily for me. Um, and I enjoyed my summer in New York, but I wasn't necessarily passionate about living in New York long-term. Um, I spent one summer in Boston, actually, um, working in a management consulting firm. Um, again, had learned a lot and had a good experience there but wasn't certain that management consulting was really for me. I did like Boston, and so obviously in, later in life I came, came back to this area. Um, so that, that was uh, um, you know, part, of, part of my life journey, but um, you know, I decided that wasn't really for me. And, and I was coming out of school in the late 90s during the you know, kind of Web 1.0, telecom, you know, dot-com um, kind of boom era. And so I started to learn more about startups and started to learn more about you know, technology companies and, and I really did want to combine some of the engineering side of my education and the business side of my education in my, in my work. Um, and so that, you know, led me to say, okay, um, let me see if I can find a job in, in a startup and maybe move to Silicon Valley, which was a little bit tricky because most of the, you know, on-campus recruiting is for, for big companies and for other kinds of industries. But, you know, I, I charged my course from there. So then the, the, the guest lecture part. So there was a, an, a Penn alum, um, Elon Musk, who came on campus to, to, to speak. Uh, so, 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 so what was it? What was that whole story all about? Yeah. So, um, that's how I got my first job. Um, you know, a little bit of luck, a little bit of, you know, taking a chance and taking a risk. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of putting yourself in the right, right place at the right time. So, uh, this was the kind of fall of 1999. So really in the, you know, main part of the web 1.0 kind of boom. Um, Elon is a is a Penn alum. He's a few years, he's about five or six years older than I am. And at that time he had started a company. His very first startup was a company called Zip2. Um, this was a company started in the kind of mid-90s. Um, it was originally backed by Sequoia Capital. Um, and it was it was in the Web 1.0 era, basically helping create um, content and information for uh, newspaper companies and media companies on, on their website. Um, he ended up selling that company pretty successfully to uh, uh, to digital. At the time, uh, they had search engine Alta Vista back in the day. It was pretty that's right. Oh my God, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, they paid, I think, 300 million bucks cash for the company, which was a big big deal at the time. So anyway, Elon, Elon though, wasn't, nobody knew who Elon Musk was. He wasn't like a household name or, or uh, you know, an, an Iron Man figure or whatever. But, um, you know, he, uh, at Penn, they do a series of guest lectures for the students like us um where it's someone from the business world typically often a ceo but you know i think that year we had the ceo of american airlines bob crandall at the time and you know the ceos of finance companies or or cpg companies um but not that many tech companies would come and certainly not that many startup ceos came but um elon came back and did a guest lecture um and he talked a little bit about his experience starting zip2 and selling that company but a lot of what he was talking about was the new company he had started which was called x.com um, which ended up becoming PayPal. It's a longer story, but um, 
what became PayPal was originally two separate companies, X.com that Elon started um, and Confinity that Peter Thiel and Max Lepshin started. The two companies ended up merging together, 50-50 merger and growing from there. But at the time that Elon came back to Penn and did his talk, he was talking about X.com. And so I went and saw the talk. And then they do a little thing after the um, session where if you, you're interested, you can sign up and try and get a spot to sit and have dinner with the, the speaker. And, you know, they invite 10 kids or so. And so, you know, I, I got one spot. And so after, you know, a couple hours later that, that evening when they had the dinner, um, I went and most of the kids, you know, kids, I was whatever, 21 years old or whatever I was at that point. Um, most people go because they want to talk to the speaker, but a lot of people just go because it's an ice cream meal at a at a decent restaurant, you know, at, at near Penn's campus there. Um, and so I get in in the door in the room, it's a little private room with like you know ten kids and, and Elon, one or two work professors, and uh, literally nobody's sitting next to Elon. He's by himself at the end of the table, and most of the other kids that went were like you know underclassmen who just you know wanted a free meal. And so I was like, ah, let me go talk to this guy. So I sat next to him at the dinner and uh, we ended up chatting at the dinner and, and hitting it off. And, um, you know, he, he was asking me what I was interested in doing um, after I graduated. And I actually said I was interested in joining a startup. And, and so make a long story short, um, he invited me to fly out to Palo Alto and interview for a job. So I, I did that. We didn't exactly know what I was, what job I was going to, what role I was going to take, but he offered me a job after, you know, at the end of that day, I interviewed with like three or four folks and, I took it on the spot and flew back to Philadelphia that night. So it was a long day in terms of flying flying from Philadelphia to California and back. But um, but uh, I, I joined X.com basically December of 99, uh, kind of midway through my senior year. That's such a great story. So the lesson learned for whether if you're in college or any time, this applies to any age. If you're networking uh, and there's a dinner, sit next to the person that's speaking because that's probably the person you want to network with. <laughs> or yeah. Absolutely. Sit in the front row too. I always look at I always look at events like why is the front row always empty? Like no, I'm like sit in the front row. That way you get early access to the speakers once they wrap up and you can go shake their hands. So. Right. If you want to chat with them or ask a question, you know, even if you don't go up afterwards, but like even if you want to ask a question. So and again, it, with the benefit of hindsight, yeah, of course, who wouldn't want to sit next to Elon Musk and chat with him? Right now, it'd be like everyone. Yeah. You have to remember this is before anybody knew he was just he was just some guy who started a company. Um, but um, you know, I think. Uh, Networking is a full context. I mean, right now we're in a lockdown period of social distancing, but normally networking is a is a full context sport in terms of you know getting to know people. And some people you get to know are are interesting, some aren't interesting, some are people that you can help in different ways, some are people who can help you. But mm-hmm. you know, it's it's just part of part of uh, you know part of part of building a professional. Yeah, you never know who you're going to meet. So as you mentioned, uh, X.com and Confinity, they merged together to create PayPal. So then you go out to the West Coast and join PayPal. So what? how large was the company then? And then you ended up working in product management, right? Yeah. So when I, um, you know, I, I joined the company, I joined X.com technically, uh, or took the offer in December of 99. I started work in May of 2000 after the two companies had merged. Um, and at that time we were probably about a 40 odd person startup between the X.com side and the community side. They each had about, I think X.com had 20, or 30 people and community had about 20 people or so. Um, and so my first job, uh, when I started right out of school was, uh, as a product manager and I worked for, uh, a guy named David Sachs, who was our VP of product, ended up becoming the COO of PayPal over time. And then has gone on to do other. Yeah. Yammer, Zenefits, now Craft Ventures. So, so he was my, he was my first boss when I joined. Um, and I, I started off as a PM and I didn't know anything about product management. 
to be totally honest, as you know, when you come out of undergrad, you don't, you know, you know a little about a little, but you basically don't know a lot about a lot. Um, but um, it was an interesting role for me because I, I did get to combine a little bit of the engineering side of my education and a little bit of the business side because um, at PayPal and PM, the product management role was basically, um, you know, one PM would work with a pod of, you know, three or four engineers and maybe a designer to help spec out a product and, you know, build a feature within the, the system. And so you had to combine, you know, the ability to, just like any PM role, you had to combine the ability to understand the business requirements of what feature you were building and, you know, talk to different stakeholders across the organization if it impacted customer service or finance or whatever. But then you had to be able to, you know, uh, work collaboratively with, um, you know, engineers and designers to actually build the feature. Um, and this is like, you know, pre, you know, agile development. Uh, this is like 2000. So, um, you know, we would push code every, you know, 30 days or 45 days, which was like pretty darn fast back in the day. Um, but, you know, pre agile, pre continuous to release development cycles. But um, it was a great, great learning experience for me. And I built a lot of, you know, both friendships and, you know, personal relationships during that time. So as most people know, PayPal took off, went public and was acquired by eBay in 2002, I believe, for one and a half billion. That's correct. We went public uh, Valentine's Day of 2002. Um, I just, I remember it sticks out. Uh, we were kind of a wave of companies that went public after the, the dot-com crash and sort of the, the NASDAQ crash. So, you know, we were building initially during the, the boom times of 99, 2000. But then, you know, when, when things, you know, crash, we, we went through some pretty challenging times at, at PayPal and Life and Death, you know, burning a lot of dough and, and whatever else. But, you know, we had built a, a really, you know, enduring business and sustainable business. And so we were, I think we had about a hundred million in revenue at the time we went public in uh, February of 02. And then even about the company just a few, you know, six months later or so. So what was it like working with that team? I mean, I already mentioned so many, you know, people that have gone on to do amazing things. And then obviously the creation of the whole PayPal mafia. And, but even like, you know, Elon Musk, he's a, you know, a, a celebrity now. Right. But I'm just always blown away by it when I see him speak at different conferences or whatever video I'm checking out online, how much he knows about so many things that are really difficult topics. Like I mean, SpaceX, Tesla, like these are things that are not, um, you know, the same lane. Right. <laughs> just crazy. Yeah. Um, so Elon specifically, um, you know, he was the CEO of the combined company for a while. And then, um, you know, the, uh, eventually Peter Thiel took over and was the CEO of the company later on and then through the IPO. So with Elon, um, you know, he is, um, he's the way I describe him is he's just someone who, uh, he's incapable of thinking small thoughts. That's kind of the way I describe him. Um, he, he thinks, uh, he thinks about really big opportunities and challenges, whether that's, you know, uh, human exploration of space, whether that's uh, electrification of vehicles, whether that's, you know, any variety of different things. Um, and so, but he, you know, he, he, so he thinks really big thoughts, but he is capable of understanding them and discussing them at a, at a very granular level, which is, which is pretty, you know, fairly unique. Like you can talk with a, you know, a, a rocket scientist about building a rocket and he can talk with, um, a battery expert about, you know, uh, building an EV. Um, so, you know, that makes him a pretty, pretty unique guy. Um, and he's, he's somebody who, um, he thinks big thoughts. He's pretty, he's very passionate about what he's building. Um, and he works really hard. I mean, I remember, 
a number of times, you know, uh, in my first year of PayPal there where he would often work closely with us in the, the product group. Um, and we had a little couch, a little huddle area where, you know, David and the, you know, whatever, nine or 10 of us PMs would, would meet up. And more than once, you know, you'd come, you, we'd be working late into the night on something and then you'd go home. I went home to my apartment and slept, you'd come back the next day and you find Elon had fallen asleep on the couch there, you know, at whatever o'clock, eight, eight o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning. Like, you know, so um, so he, he's a really um, interesting, you know, big thinker. Um, but people have had, you know, such a, so many really um, sharp, thoughtful, creative people. Um, you know, uh, I was fortunate to get to, to be around and work for, you know, folks like Elon and David Sachs and Reid Hoffman and, and Peter and, and Max and, and others. And there's different personalities too, you know, some um, people have different styles and different personalities, but, um, and not just the, the senior figures of PayPal in that time. I, I think also even those of us who are sort of foot soldiers in the PayPal mafia, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who were, you know, junior mid-level employees went on to do really interesting things in their, in their life and their careers. So um, it was a unique company to be part of and a unique time to, to be around a lot of those people. Let's talk about the next, uh, next company. So LinkedIn. So uh, I looked up my member ID number. Like I knew I was early on LinkedIn because I was a headhunter uh, and I was deep in the weeds of trying to figure out what's the next thing I should be leveraging to build up my network. Um, and so I was a member number 55,829. So I was in the first 56,000 people uh, uh, on LinkedIn. So I'm, I definitely want to get into the weeds of this story. So how did this all come about? you know, building the company out of Reed Hoffman's basement or his house or apartment or something like that, right? Yeah, so um, so you say your member number was 56,000 something something? 56,000, yeah, 55,829. Okay, so a little known fact, the first 1,209 profile user IDs we actually used during testing before we launched. So the oh. first one actually when we launched was 1210, okay. uh, which is Jean-Luc Bayan, our, our co-founder CTO. Um, so you can subtract 1,209 from your number and that's what number you are. Um, so I'm, I'm 12, 12, I'm, I'm the third profile in the system. I, I beat Reed by like 15 seconds. So he's, he's one after me actually, um, in terms of like when we turned on the system and signed up. Um, so, um, you know, the LinkedIn story, um, uh, yes, it was a group of us working out of Reed's apartment, uh, in Mountain View part-time when we started and. The best way to think about LinkedIn is is two things. One, I, I describe it as Reed's brain on the internet. You know, <laughs> Reed is a, has you know throughout his career has thought about professional networking in, in lots of uh, thoughtful ways, and so a lot of the vision and even purpose of what LinkedIn was trying to do was sort of an instantiation of some of Reed's ideas turned into a consumer internet product. In terms of the team, you know, he pulled in um, some folks from his start. He had a startup prior to PayPal called Social Net, which was kind of almost a, you know, proto social networking company. Um, this would have been late nineties. Um, so uh, Jean-Luc, our, our CTO, um, Alan Blue, our VP product, um, you know, our, our head designer, our couple of the first engineers, um, all came from the social net side of the company or you know came from social net Reed pulled them in he pulled me i'd worked with reed at in sort of the second phase of my time at, at paypal um and so he pulled me in from my from from paypal and that was basically the, the founding team um there was one or two folks eric lee and 
um, Constantine, who, who were neither from SocialNet nor PayPal, but had known Reed as well. And so um, there was a group of us basically working on, you know, we were working together as a team. And this was in the, this was before social networking was really a thing. Um, so this is, you know, I think Mark Zuckerberg's still in uh, high school. Like Friendster was in beta, I think. I was looking at the dates and everything. I think Friendster was like a, a thing then that was in like even beta, not even a thing yet. It was in beta, but it was a it was password protected beta. And and the um, I think the password was like Coke or Coca-Cola or something. Like it was, a, it was a well-known secret what the password was. So you could get into the password protected beta. Um, but yes, Friendster was was the, the dominant social network was Friendster and they had maybe, I don't know, 100,000 users or something like that in beta. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we were thinking about social networking as, as what we now think of social networking, we think about um, different ways to apply that in, in different business models and different aspects of people's life. So LinkedIn was as much a team, you know, a, a team formed to start a company as, as well as a specific idea. Um, and in fact, in the latter part of 2002, when people were still kind of part-time moonlighting, um, we actually toyed with a couple different other ideas um, to experiment with. Um, you know, we toyed with one, which was going to be in the kind of a social network around movies and entertainment. We, we toyed with a couple different ideas, but really the professional network vision was really the core vision. And so, you know, we started working on it in earnest really end of 02. Um, I think people started going full-time by the beginning of 03. And we launched site publicly in May of 03. And, you know, a lot of what we aspired to build at that time, um, it's been interesting to see LinkedIn has been able to, to, to come to fruition over time. What was your role? Because you were, I know you were part of, um, you know, raising capital, you know, the first round of funding with, with Reed. So what was it like ra- raising capital? Because like, this is, you know, for context, you know, 2003-ish or 2008, I'm sorry, 2002, 2003. And, um, you know, we already talked about Friendster, but you know, this is like the iPod was still like a thing. Like that was just launching. So this is pre-iPhone. <laughs> yeah, the iPod was just becoming a thing. So um, my title was head of corporate development, but practically speaking, I reported to Reed and I did three things. Um, one, I ran our kind of analytics team in the early days, which the analytics team was me writing SQL queries to understand how the, you know, how our user base was growing and what we could do to increase virality and whatever else. But I eventually hired um, someone to, to really run that uh, more broadly over time. Um, the second thing was VC fundraising with Reed, um, and I'll, I'll touch on that. And then the third thing was basically the finance and ops kind of biz ops functions of the companies uh, for LinkedIn in the early years of, of life. Um, so our first director of finance reported to me and stuff like that. Um, so it was kind of a catch-all. You know, my title was corporate development, but it wasn't like corporate development in the M&A or whatever sense. Um, we actually did acquire a tiny little company for some IP, but um, it was really, it was kind of a jack-of-all-trades, uh, you know, business guy working working with, with Reed as his, his right-hand man for the early days. Well, well, everybody else did, did the real work of product and engineering, whatever. So um, in terms of fundraising, you know, the, the company started out with a little bit of capital from Reed. You know, Reed essentially provided the seed capital for the company. Um, and then also this, those of us who were, you know, sort of co-founders, founding team members, um, you know, some folks worked for, for equity for, for a period of time rather than for, for salary. So we kind of funded it that way. And then, you know, the first round of capital that we raised, we raised in the fall of 2003 from uh, Sequoia Capitals, like a little less than $5 million Series A. 
And, you know, what was it like raising money for the company at that time? Uh, well, we raised the A then and follow of 03. We raised the B. It was a $10 million B round in 2004 from, from Greylock. Raising money in kind of 2003 for the first round of capital for the company, um, you have to mentally, I, I describe, I tell people mentally remind your clock. So Google is a private company. You know, Silicon Valley and the tech ecosystem has just come, you know, still just barely coming out of the dot-com crash and, and you know, um, it's not really back into any kind of a boom phase. And so there's a lot of VC hesitancy about consumer internet, right? So a lot of people in 2003 said, consumer internet's dead. We saw pets.com and Webvan and all these other companies implode, you know, just, you know, 18 months ago. Um, there's, there's no way that, you know, consumer internet's going to be a thing. And, and with the benefit of hindsight, obviously, that's not the way things played out. And, you know, social networking, Web 2.0 wave, you know, ended up being a pretty impactful part of uh, the startup ecosystem. But at the time, there's a lot of people who were skeptical about consumer internet companies. And so we got plenty of those, you know. Uh, there were some people who were excited about what we were doing. We were fortunate we got term sheets from a couple firms to, to consider. And so we, you know, evaluated those options and uh, ultimately we ended up you know, taking the, the Series A from, from Sequoia. So um, it was a happy, successful story in terms of the fundraise, but it was by no means a, you know, a low friction process. And it, it, building a product then, this was, you know, pre-AWS where you could just, you know, launch a, you know, a, a beta and just, you know, spin up some, you know, hosting on uh, Amazon Web Services to get a product built. But so totally different time. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, uh, you would, buy physical, you know, servers and storage arrays and put them into a, you know, a co-location facility. And so, you know, I got to go, not because, you know, I wasn't the technical, you know, the product engineering side of the house, but just when you're a nine person company, like everybody, you know, everybody who can pick up a server and carry it and stick it in a rack does that, you know, at the colo facility when we first got set up. So, um, so yeah, it was, you know, product development and, and you, and, you know, you pay for Oracle database licenses and all this other stuff that, you know, now is just kind of open source. So, you know, there's, there's, lots, there's lots of aspects about building a product and building a company that are were different, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, but there's lots of the core tenants that are the same in terms of like how engineers and product managers, you know, work together and, and how folks, you know, conceive of a product and how you measure what's working and what's not working and, you know, building dashboards to understand your, your business. So, you know, 20 or 30% changes and it's totally different, but the majority of it's still the same. Well, let's talk about, you know, you were heading up the analytics team and, you know, uh, you know, measuring uh, the traction side, because, you know, if, if you don't have members joining and there's no viral coefficient, there's going to be a failure. So uh, what's impressive about LinkedIn is it's pretty much grown through that viral nature, not a, you know, paid acquisition model. So, so what were you measuring and what, what were, what did you notice? What was like that? aha moment of getting traction because I, I i don't know the exact details but i've heard you know facebook it was someone had to you know invite or connect with three other friends within a certain amount of days i know those aren't the right metrics but there was they had like it down to a science yeah so in the you know probably the the best way to break it down is the first six to six months or a year of linkedin um when the utility of the product was was pretty limited and then you know, the subsequent second, third, fourth year work utility started to increase. So at the very beginning, um, you know, we literally just, the founding team just invited all, all, all their professional colleagues and friends and tried to get them to join. Um, 
And then, you know, from there you start getting second and third degree people who start to join. And, and then what ends up happening is there's utility that gets built at a very micro level. And what I mean is you have to have network density for it to be useful. There has to be network density around a specific geography or sector or whatever so that people can get utility out of it, right? So, um, you know, the first place that we got some level of utility was in Silicon Valley amongst, you know, the startup ecosystem of, you know, founders and angel investors and stuff like that. You know, once you have, I don't know, 20,000, 25,000 people, you know, who can look at a profile and contact each other, like there's at least limited utility, right? Um, interestingly, the, the kind of next ecosystem or hub that we started to get some critical mass in was actually in Finland. It's a long, complicated story, but the very short version is some people at Nokia started using the product. And at the time, if you recall, Nokia was like a pretty big, huge tech company. And, you know, we all carried Nokia phones in our pockets rather than, you know, Apple phones or, or Android phones. Um, and so, um, you know, the kind of tech ecosystem in and around, um, you know, Finland started starting to get some density. Um, and then you saw that, you know, LinkedIn over time became, you know, useful particularly in the tech ecosystem and tech industry. And then it became kind of mainstream everywhere um, in, in the United States and in every country. So, but in the early days, the things that we were looking at was basically, it, it was the same kinds of things as any other uh, social network or viral, virally spreading product of, you know, how many people are joining? What percentage of those people are inviting other people? How many invitations do they send out? And, you know, what's the conversion rate of the invitations that get sent out? So if I send, you know, an invitation to 10 of my, you know, professional contacts, you know, do three of them join, do five of them join, you know, what's, what's that percentage? There's also a time cycle factor we were looking at in terms of, you know, if people don't send invitations for weeks or months, you know, you're, people talk about a viral coefficient of R, and actually people are talking about viruses and we're all armchair epidemiologists with COVID-19 right now. You know, the R, the R value um, matters in terms of whether you have an exponential spread or not. Um, but there's a, something that doesn't always get paid attention to, which is the time cycle of, you know, how quickly something spreads, because um, that actually steepens the curve or flattens the curve a little bit. But to make a long story short, um, there was no magic, you know, there was no magic formula of, okay, well, if people invite three people within seven days, you know, they're going to convert what ended up, or, you know, they're going to start using the system uh, more dramatically. Um, the, what we found was um, a minority of people actually invited other friends. You know, when, when you join a novel service, there's kind of the social pressure of like, oh, do I want to invite my friends or professional contacts or not? Is that weird? Is that so? In the very early days, you know, it was it would have been difficult to get a majority of people to send invitations out. So we were relying on a minority of people who were kind of super connectors and ended up inviting a large number of people, either because they had a large network or the nature of their work meant that that was beneficial to them. Or there's just some people whose personality is tied to their network and their Uber networkers. And so in the early days, we were doing a lot of things to help that minority that was inviting, invite as many people as possible. So plugging into their, you know, at the time, the email systems that mattered were Outlook and Yahoo and Hotmail and Gmail was pretty darn small. Um, so those kinds of things. Um, and then the other thing that we, we you know, one of the other early insights was if you can reduce the friction for someone to invite, you know, they're more likely to invite in the future. So what's the best way to reduce the friction? And so we did things, we built features like, you know, before someone invites someone who's not in the system, they might actually connect with someone who they know has already signed up for LinkedIn, right? So like 
if I know you, Keith, have already signed up for LinkedIn, I can send you a connection request and I know that you're going to know what LinkedIn is and it's not going to feel weird to you versus I send this thing out to someone who's never heard of LinkedIn before. And so we built features so that when someone, you know, uploaded their contact list, it would very clearly show, hey, these 10 people are already on LinkedIn. Do you want to start with a connection to them before you, you know, send out an invite to someone who's never heard of the service? You know, there's 20 different things like that that we tried and, you know, email, uh, you know, the email invitations, the subject lines, we did lots of A-B testing on which ones converted better or not. You know, the time cycle of if someone doesn't accept an invite, should you send a, you know, a reminder three days later or seven days later or 20 days later or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just block and tackling around, a, you know, a viable product. But you're right that, you know, LinkedIn's grown to be a massive service without ever really spending on, uh, you know, they do brand advertising today. There's billboards and TV commercials and stuff like that. But the company basically grew without ever spending on user acquisition. And then initial monetization, did you like, you know, it uprooted recruiting, like it changed, you know, how companies went about hiring and, you know, before LinkedIn, you know, people would be on like monster or something or Craigslist even like where, you know, it was taboo to put your resume up there. Cause then your employer might see that you're looking, but now you could be on, you know, this professional networking site and, you know, maybe you're getting pinged by recruiters and, you know, your open opportunities, you're not, you know, aggressively looking, but anyways, how did, how did the initial monetization strategy come into place? So um, even before we turned on monetization, that was the vision, right? We talked about like, if I pull out the pitch deck from 2003, um, when we pitched Sequoia and all the other series A firms, we talked about, you know, um, you know, monster 2.0 or resume 2.0 um, and hiring and recruiting. We talked about other things too, because we thought LinkedIn could have applicability for, you know, sales or business development professionals or other kinds of stuff. So we had all kinds of ideas there. Um, and ads was actually not something we talked about because at the time, like internet advertising was was in, you know, had gone through a, a pretty nuclear winter and wasn't really a thing um, or not, not a huge thing. Um, and kind of ads marketing solutions is not a, is a relatively small minority of LinkedIn's revenue today, but it's, it's, it's a chunk of it. But we really were focused on, we talked about resume 2.0. We talked about, um, you know, displacing traditional job sites like like monster.com. Um, and you're right that the key thing that we were successful at doing on LinkedIn was surfacing latent talent, right? So here's a way for people who are hiring to tap into really talented, qualified people who are not actively seeking a job, right? Not that active job seekers are all bad, but, you know, someone who is not you know, often the best candidates and best people to hire are people who are, you know, crushing at their current job and they're not out looking for a new job right now, right? So, um, you know, that was a, an insight that we had that this LinkedIn could be this latent talent pool and have value there. Practically speaking, when we first turned on monetization, it was pretty crude, right? There was basically a job listing functionality, quite similar to a Monster or a Craigslist or Indeed or whatever. Um, it wasn't a rec- it wasn't what you now think of as the talent solutions recruiter you know SaaS product that LinkedIn is, um, or that's a big chunk of LinkedIn's revenue, not all of it. Um, but um, the asset that we thought we had was around latent talent, um, and that's where we wanted to skate. But the actual like you know revenue monetization at the beginning was a, basically a job po- you know job posting uh, you know pay to post a job. And then we actually toyed with some premium subscriptions too, to be able to, you know, contact more people or do other kinds of things. And over time, you know, both of those are our key components of LinkedIn's revenue today. If you think about, you know, talent solutions is still the biggest part that, you know, the hiring SaaS product. 
and all the suite of so stuff around that. Um, but premium subscriptions is, is a chunk of it, as is you know the ads and marketing solution stuff. All right. So from after LinkedIn, you, you, know, you came back east, and was venture capital something that you wanted to do? And and you know why did you decide to, to settle down in the Boston area? Yeah. So um, in terms of you know VC uh, versus startups, I th- I thought about. Um, well, moving from California to the East Coast was as much a personal decision for my wife and I as it was um, a professional decision for, for either of us. Um, you know, both of us have, I, I didn't grow up in uh, New England, but um, by odd circumstance, most of my family ended up in New England over time. And my wife is originally from New England. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, and she went to college in the Northeast was, as well. So, you know, we made a personal decision to move from uh, the West Coast to the Northeast. And, um, at that point, you know, I landed in the Boston area and I was thinking about either, um, getting involved in a third startup somehow or, um, pursuing a VC path. Um, and I, I talked to, um, a handful of VC firms and I talked to a handful of startups as well. Um, and ultimately, um, you know, I think I was, I was intrigued by the, the venture capital path and wanted to, you know, give that a shot for the next phase of my career. And the reasons were, you know, I had had a little bit of exposure to VCs from my time at PayPal and LinkedIn in terms of pitching people for, for LinkedIn and getting to interact a little bit with our, our board at times at PayPal. Um, but it, uh, you know, to me, it seemed like an intriguing career where I could, could combine, you know, my time and knowledge having worked with startups with, you know, a, a different model of, of business in terms of you're an investor or an advisor of startups. You're not you know, sort of the, the one, you know, building companies. And so my, my goal or aspiration of pursuing a career on the VC side for the next phase of my career was, um, you know, I love technology startups. I love being an entrepreneur, working with entrepreneurs. Um, but my hope in, in going down the VC path was that I could get breadth versus, versus depth, right? So I could work with a handful of startups at any given time, not just, you know, be, be in one startup. Um, you know, when you're, when you're, whether you're a junior employee or you're you know, a founder or C-level person in a startup, you're, you're really deep, intense, focused on just one market, just one business, right? Um, you know, as a VC, we have the, you know, uh, opportunity to, to get to learn about lots of different markets. We're, we're not as deep as anyone who's building a company, but, you know, we get a breadth of, of learning about markets and learning about different kinds of companies. So breadth versus depth was one. Um, you know, the second was my favorite time at LinkedIn and PayPal was when we were relatively small companies. Um, and whatever, a, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 person company is today, you know, it's probably not going to be that in five or 10 years. It might be a hundreds or thousands of people. It might be zero people and out of business or whatever. But the, one of the beautiful things about VC firms is they're relatively small organizations and even ones that prosper and grow and thrive, um, you know, they still stay relatively small, right? So in the history of ne- next year, we started next year 10 years ago. Uh, you know, there's three of us that started the firm together. We've doubled in size. We now have six people that work at NXP, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> but we're still quite small as an organization. So I like small organizations. Um, and then the third thing was, you know, I was at a point in my career where I was managing a handful of folks at, at LinkedIn. Um, um, but, you know, if you're on the business side of startups, you know, then what often happens is as your career progresses, you manage larger and larger teams of people, whether you're, you know, a business unit, you know, head or a functional VP head or a CEO or whatever. And, you know, managing people was something that hopefully I did okay at, um, but it wasn't something I was super passionate about. And so I wasn't like, okay, well, 
I really want to manage an organization of 200 people, you know, in the next five or 10 years of my career or whatever. So, um, you know, VC is a world where I don't really manage anybody. Um, you know, I get to interact with and be a, be a collaborator with, you know, a variety of founders um, and their teams, but, you know, I'm not really directly managing anybody on day to day. So those are the things I hope to get out of VC. So how did NextView come together? So the three of us that started the firm, myself, Rob Go, Dave Beisel, um, you know, we'd actually all known each other for, for some period of time before we started NextView 10 years ago. The two of them, Rob and David, have actually known each other for a long time. They both uh, overlapped at, at, as undergrads at Duke, and they both started their career at, at the same uh, management consulting firm in Boston before Rob went out west for eBay, and, and Dave started a company that they ended up selling. But anyway, we, we, we'd all, um, we had all known each other for a couple of years before we started NextView, and they'd known each other for a while. And we'd all been at in operating and startup, you know, in founder roles prior to becoming VCs. So I was in another firm before Rob and Dave were both at, at other firms before we started next year. And we saw, you know, a, the, the three of us independently saw some of the same forces that were starting to shape one particular part of the VC ecosystem, specifically the seed stage ecosystem. And so we saw, you know, we were at kind of series A, series B stage firms that weren't necessarily focused on kind of seed stage investing. But at the time, again, this is 2009, 2010, 2011 type timeframe, it was becoming more obvious to us that more and more companies were going to start with a relatively modest amount of seed stage capital before they would raise larger rounds down the road. Um, and I saw this, you know, unlike when we were starting LinkedIn or building PayPal, like agile development, open source software, you know, sort of any of 20 different forces meant that you could launch a business without a ton of capital. Um, so Rob, Dave and I all saw this, trend towards more and more, not every startup, but many, many, many startups were going to start with a small amount of seed stage capital. And um, there were not as many firms at the time focused on it. When we started next year, there was maybe, I don't know, a dozen or 20 seed stage firms across the entire United States. Now there's hundreds and hundreds, but the relatively few at the time. And so the three of us decided to leave our prior firms and, you know, start a firm together. Um, and so that, that became next year is the, is the very short story. Well, let's talk about next view today. So um, what is the everyday economy, which is a key piece to your, your investment thesis? Yeah. So, you know, we remain, um, we started off with the seed stage focus at next year. We remain seed stage investors. Um, uh, so we look for companies that are, you know, pre-traction and that that's everything. Nowadays, seed covers this continuum. So that includes everything from pre-seed to second seed to big seed and whatever else. So part of our lens is a stage of, we look at seed stage investments and we're typically the lead investor or co-lead investor at some kind of seed stage round. The other lens that we look through is this everyday economy lens, which to us, what this means is we're in a period now, you know, both in the recent past and probably in the, in the, in the coming future where digital technologies are changing so many different categories of the everyday economy for normal people. And what, and what we mean is, they're changing the way everyday consumers buy things, what they, how they spend their money, you know, how they interact with the world. They're changing things for everyday workers, right? Where, you know, people are using software in their work for in so many different ways now that they didn't, you know, a decade or two ago. Um, and so we look for businesses that are taking innovative technologies and innovative business models and applying them to categories of, you know, everyday work, everyday consumers, and the kind of plumbing that makes all that go. It's, it's intentionally a bit broad, but the way that 
it helps us think about the world as a lens is, you know, there's lots of products and businesses and categories that may be interesting markets in and of themselves, but they're not, you know, they're not products that are habitual or pervasive across, you know, a large part of the workforce, a large part of the consumer base. And if you actually break down the economy, you know, huge swath of our economy is driven by decisions that individuals make either as workers or as consumers. And they end up getting concentrated in a handful of categories around transportation, financial services, health, apparel, food, so on and so forth. And so it's not a category strategy. We're not focused on this category or this category, but we look through this everyday economy lens and it helps us, you know, think about what is a great opportunity that, that fits us. So like when you're making an investment, like, what do you, like, what are you actually looking for? And like, like, even in like a first meeting, what do you expect to get out of that, uh, you know, first meeting with an entrepreneur and then what ultimately leads you down the path to making an investment in a company? Yeah. So, you know, in a first meeting with a founder uh, or co-founders, teams of founders, um, you know, we're really trying to do two things. One is we're trying to understand them. You know, are these, are these exceptional people? Um, we like authentic founders, meaning they're starting this business for a specific reason, not just, it wasn't just, okay, we're, we want to start a company. So what kind of company should we start? It's, you know, we're open almost compelled to start this company. Entrepreneurship is kind of an irrational thing, right? To like quit your job, start a company with little or no resource, um, you know, build something from scratch. It's, it's an irrational act. And so when people do that, the ones that tend to be the most successful and build the most transformative business, it's almost like I said, a, you know, they're doing it for an authentic reason because they, they have an experience in that industry or because they see something that the rest of the world doesn't see. Um, so a lot of what we're doing in the first meeting is just trying to get to know the founders in terms of, are these exceptional people? Are they authentic founders? Do they have a perspective on the world that's, you know, different and unique and, and special? How experienced are they? How ambitious are they? A lot of what we then spend our time on in that first meeting though, is really just understanding what is their, their company and what is their vision for it, right? Because we're investing at the seed stage, sometimes it's truly concept, you know, it's two people in a PowerPoint, right? It's concept stage stuff. Sometimes they have a product prototype or, you know, even a little bit of an early, you know, revenue that they, they can point to and some, something that they can point to. So we spent time trying to understand what's, what's there in the business. And really the big thing there is not, you know, trying to forecast the business 10 years in the future or looking at historical results or what have you. It's really how does the market that they're playing in and the market forces that, that drive that market get impacted or shaped by, you know, what they aspire to build and the product and service that they aspire to build. So, so how do you determine seed rounds these days? Because like seed rounds used to be like half a million, a million. Now they're like a million, two million, three million. I, I saw one yesterday. I think it was like four and a half million and sometimes maybe even larger. So like, so what's usually like the size of investment that NextView is looking to make? Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. When we started 10 years ago, the average size of the seed round was about a million bucks. Pre-money valuations on average were like 4.1. We looked at when we're doing those investments out of our first fund. Um, and they were in a fairly narrow band. Um, nowadays we think about seed as a continuum, um, because there really is a range of companies pre a, and, and that's a combination of things that have happened at the seed stage. And it's a combination of things that have happened at you know, what in the series a stage, sort of the next round of capital, but generally speaking, um, we next few have chosen to play across the spectrum of seed. There are some seed funds that focus on pre-seed or large seed or what have you. We do any kind of pre-A, Series A round um, for a company. And so we have the flexibility to, you know, if it's a four or $500,000 pre-seed type round, um, you know, we can write a 250, 300, 400, $500,000 check into that round. 
if it's a larger one and a half to two and a half million dollar round, uh, we can write a, a million dollar check into that round. And if it's a you know super seed or second seed or whatever, that's you know three, four, or five million dollars, we can write a you know one and a half, two million plus check into that round. So we can flex our check size from a couple hundred thousand up to a couple million um, to be to fit the the, the nature of the round um, because we've chosen to basically say we want to find the best companies that are somewhere at that seed stage continuum. We don't really care whether it's a pre-seed stage round, a sort of normal seed round, a supersized seed round. Um, we're looking for the best companies and we'll, you know, it's incumbent on us to adjust our investment strategy to fit the nature of the round. One of the things that companies struggle with is, is hiring, right? And it's all about the people that ultimately build a company and hopefully reach a pinnacle of success. But uh, so there was a, there was a discussion, a podcast, uh, I think Y Combinator's podcast where they're interviewing uh, Reed Hoffman. And he, he mentioned you specifically in the interview where he's like, uh, companies should really need to hire super, super smart generalists, not necessarily traditionally qualified people. Uh, so the, the discussion that Sam Altman and Reed were having where companies sometimes fall in the trap of, I need someone who has experience like you were at LinkedIn doing operations, um, analytics and fundraising. Uh, you were a product manager before that. So maybe you could have done the analytics. There could have been some crossover there. Who knows? But uh, the whole point they were making is you got to hire really smart people that you can throw problems at them and let them solve them. And I saw Wayfair did this really well in the, you know, the building of, of CSN stores and Wayfair. But a lot of companies in my background as a recruiter, like I would get, hey, we need to hire X. And they, it was like in a box, we would need someone with this experience and someone that knows how to do exactly this versus someone that can just see from a different angle. So, so what are your thoughts around hiring and how should you know, stars think about that? Yeah, I, I use this, I use a sports analogy. And I know sports analogies often are, are, are uh, trite and overused, but um, in the early stages, early to mid stages of a company, so much is changing so quickly and so much is unknown that having smart, capable generalists, um, when you say general, you know, generalist or jack of all trades is sometimes a, a pejorative. Um, you know, the way to think about that in a positive sense is someone who knows something about a range of different subjects or someone who's capable of learning extremely quickly and capably about a range of different subjects or functional areas. Right? Yeah, like a good example is someone coming out of management consulting, like a Bain McKinsey type of person that right. is exposed to different problems. So when so much is unknown and so much is uncertain and so much is happening at such a rapid pace, um, having really smart, talented people who know a variety of different things around, you know, may not be a master of any one domain, but can know a whole bunch of different areas or can learn them very quickly. means that you can actually be a lot more effective than, um, you know, someone who's, uh, has deep, deep, deep domain expertise and experience just in one area. Um, also, there are times where, you know, deep domain expertise or functional expertise can be constraining, right? When, when all you know is a very narrow set of um, things and the world changes very, very quick or the nature of your, your startup and your, your business is changing so quickly, it's hard for you to, to kind of, you know, learn new tricks, be, be, be the dog that learns new tricks and, and think about things in a very different way or an orthogonal way. So I think that's why people, you know, like, you know, Reed and, and, and others talk about, you know, smart, talented, hardworking generalists being very valuable to companies in, in the, especially in the early and middle phases of the company. 
Um, and the sports analogy I have is a is an NBA team, right? Nominally speaking, an NBA team has positions, right? There's a center, there's forwards, there's guards, um, and, and there is some differences. But if you look at an NBA team in the modern era here, you know, it, it's hard to pigeonhole LeBron James as like, is that guy a point guard? Is he a forward? Is he like, what, you know? No, he's just a super talented guy who can dribble, he can shoot, he can pass, he can defend, he can do lots of different things, right? Um, and so if you think about the early stage of a startup, early middle stage of a startup, you'd rather have an NBA, you know, basketball type mindset where you're hiring, you know, the best five, 10, 12, you know, people who can, who can, who are, who are capable of everything and can, and can adapt in lots of different ways. Um, rather than, you know, I need a six foot two point guard who can do specifically this thing. When a company scales and grows and gets to a more mature phase of, of its development, I think then the analogy is more like an, an NFL team, a football team, right? Where you have a 53 man roster, um, you know, every NFL need, team needs a place kicker, right? Like you just need one, right? That's your network uh, engineer. Right, correct. And so it's like, uh, and, and for and the, the analogy isn't a numerical analogy. So I'm not saying like when you're a 50 person startup, you should not be hiring generalists, but like when you're a 500 person startup or 2000 person startup, like you need a very specific network security engineer. You need a controller, you need a whatever, fill in the blank. And so you have to, you know, kind of hire for position, um, which by definition tends to lend itself more for domain expertise or functional expertise or a very specific set of experiences and qualifications, um, you know, when you get to be a more mature business. And so early stage startups are more like NBA teams, you know, thinking about recruiting for a basketball team, you know, late stage mature businesses are more like, you know, hire for position like a football team. That's a great analogy. That's awesome. I like that. Um, what, what are some of the uh, key metrics that you encourage entrepreneurs that are building a product? You know, we talked about the virality of uh, LinkedIn. So, you know, kind of in today's era, like what, what are the key metrics that you encourage entrepreneurs to track as far as customer acquisition? Yeah, in terms of customer acquisition or usage, it really does depend a lot on the nature of the business, right? So there is no one size fits all for, you know, a lot of times founders say, well, you know, how do I know if my business is working or what, what metric do I need to hit to raise capital or, you know, what, what have you. The reality is it, there isn't a one size fits all, right? So an e-commerce business looks different than a SaaS business, which looks different than, you know, a, an infrastructure type product or whatever. Um, but even stuff within the same category, there's no, there's no one right answer, right? It, it is pretty situation specific to the company. What I would say is, you know, generically speaking, the first is, are you building a product that, um, that, that customers are, are demanding, right? And what are the signals that customers are demanding your product? And so if you're a consumer product, you know, like a social network or whatever, it's, it really is that around that user adopt, viral user adoption and engagement and session length and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, if you're a B2B SaaS product, people paying money for your product is probably the best signal of product market fit that you have. Right. So, you know, at the end of the day, if someone's not willing to part with money to give to, to buy your piece of software, um, it's probably not that very, you know, not super useful for them. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think, you know, what you should be looking for as in terms of metrics or signal, probably the better way to phrase that is demand signals or, or, you know, uh, signals from your customers or, or your users that what you've hit on is something quite useful and valuable to them. It depends, but you should be looking at those kind of customer demand signals in, in whatever way they look at, look like in your business. 
as we're we're recording this, you know, we're we're dealing with the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, which is obviously you know creating turmoil across every industry. So, how do you think what we're going through is going to um, disrupt different sectors that maybe were kind of dipping their toes, like remote work, right, education? Where, where do you think there are opportunities that will become more of the new normal based on um, you know what what we've been seeing? And you know, could be a an opportunity to to build a solution. Yeah, so I think there's the obvious near term ones, and then there's the non obvious long term ones. And frankly, I'm as interested, if not more interested, in the non obvious long term ones um, because I think those are ones that arguably may have a greater impact on, on society and the economy over the next decade or two or three. Um, and frankly, maybe where more disruption happens and opportunity happens. We're in this. <laughs> interesting time for everyone where we have unintentionally run a grand experiment on so many different dimensions, you know, from remote work to online education, to telemedicine, to, you know, fill in the blank. And at some level, you know, when the genie's out of the bottle, like you can't put it back in. Right. So by having this unintentional forced experiment, you know, the obvious things are, yeah, there's probably going to be greater remote work going forward, even when, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic starts to subside or we have treatments or vaccines that, that, that do it, that can uh, address it, the public health side of it. Um, you know, there's some people who are probably going to still want to work from home at least some portion of the time and not be in an office five days a week. Companies are probably going to be more willing to hire people that are remote or distributed as they see how, how they can be effective. We're talking about kind of knowledge worker economy type type stuff, you know, someone who's, if you're physically making trucks, you know, you still have to have human beings and robots and machinery in, a, in one place to make that, right? So um, remote work and telemedicine and those kinds of things are kind of the, the obvious um, impacts that I think are gonna persist. Even, even if things quote unquote normalize or go to a new normal and, and you know, we, they're not as, you know, kids are back in school and people are back in offices and whatever else. Um, I think some of the behaviors that you see um, are undoubtedly going to persist at least at some level for for forever. Um, the the less obvious ones that I've been trying to think about, and, and other lots of th smart, thoughtful entrepreneurs are starting to think about, are you know we've we've run this forced experiment where people are now considering what's important to them and what's not important to them, and um, what can they live without and what can they not live without. Um, whether that's an experience, whether that's a thing, whether that's um, the nature of their work um, and you know people's values and priorities are not going to change 180 degrees as a result of COVID-19 and lockdowns and the health issues around it but they're going to change and so you know it's going to be interesting to see what people prioritize or don't prioritize a year from now or five years from now you know people another you know there's lots of people who live in dense urban areas right now who are rethinking whether they want to live in dense urban areas in the long run and you know, right now they're not going to up sticks and move out of their condo or apartment or whatever and, and, and move, but they might reevaluate what their importance is. And so I'm not saying, okay, we're going to have this massive de-urbanization trend, but like, I think patterns of where people work, where people live, what's important to them, how they spend their money are going to change in very subtle, but very impactful ways over the next 10 years as a result of this. Yeah. That's going to be fascinating just to see how it all shakes out. Well, Lee, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your professional journey, you know, all the details on PayPal, LinkedIn, and of course, all the great work you guys are doing at Nextview. 
Great. It's nice to chat with you, Keith. And uh, thanks for, for having interest to chat. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.